there would be no gentleness of heart if there were no wrath. No taking sin with utmost moral seriousness. I mean, if Jesus were a big softy with no wrath, no judgment towards hardness of heart, towards impenitent sin, actually, I believe, then his gentle and lowly heart dissolves too. It's both or neither. Because otherwise, if he's not a wrathful judging Christ, then he's not really gentle and lowly in heart. He's just smilier than us. He's just nicer. It's froth. Welcome to a special episode of the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking once again with Dane Ortland, so he can answer some of your questions related to his best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly. A couple weeks ago, we asked readers to submit their questions for Dane, and many of you sent in questions from around the world, questions about how Christ's gentleness fits with his wrath, whether or not we should really say that God has emotions, and if so, what they're like, and how Jesus, God incarnate, could really understand what it's like to face temptation like we do. Let's get started. Well, Dane, thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode of the Crossway Podcast. What a pleasure to do so. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, it's good to good to have you back on the show. Uh, listeners might remember we've uh, interviewed you a couple times now, mm-hmm. uh, but you were our very first test episode of the Crossway Podcast. Right. That was uh, that was a fun time together a couple years ago now. Yeah, well, that was fun to do, and it's just great to be back talking with you again, Matt. Yeah. Uh, well, today we're going to share a few questions that listeners have sent in from around the world related to your remarkable book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, but before we jump into their questions, I wonder if you could just briefly share any of your thoughts on the incredible response to the book. Uh, since it was published just this past April? I am overwhelmed, as you all are. Um, and I, I don't, I actually, I don't know how to interpret it. Mm. Um, apparently, God had a ministry in mind uh, that neither I nor any of us were aware of. So God be praised. Uh, I submit, I yield, so be it. If, if God, I, in every... I think every Christian author would say when they sit down with a project, they have a sense that God has laid something on their heart to share. That's yeah. true. But um, never have I had such a strong sense of being merely a channel, not a source. God is the source. And I don't mean that in a weird or mystical way, but God had something to say. I I, I don't know how else to to put it, that we had not been thinking about much in many quarters of the Christian church. So, uh, hallelujah. Yeah, wow. That was actually a good segue into the first question here. That's from a listener in Kettering, uh, the city of Kettering in the United Kingdom. He writes, thank you for writing Gentle and Lowly. I'm really enjoying it. What prompted you to write the book? Mm. Well, 
wading into the Puritans and realizing that they were talking about something that we don't talk about, uh, namely the heart of God, the heart of Christ. And the thing is, Matt, they did not leave behind the wrath and justice of God when talking about God's or Christ's heart. It actually was their view of divine wrath, real justice that made their vision of his heart that much more real and precious and unspeakable. So one one answer to that question is simply my own reading and what I was learning and growing in. But an, mm. another deeper layer uh, to the answer is my own life, my own folly, my own weakness and lack and need, um, my own sin and suffering. Uh, th- that book is not theory. It's not um, it's not a scientist with a white lab coat on in a sterile environment uh, and a petri dish. <laughs> I am an ordinary Christian trying to stumble my way forward in life. And this truth of Christ's heart, which the Puritans taught me about in a way no one else today was, has been oxygen to my normal up and down Christian life. So it was just me trying to survive <laughs> would be one answer to the question of what uh, prompted the writing of mm. the book. Do you remember the moment when you were presumably reading the Puritans, reading a specific Puritan, mm. that that this the core concept that Christ's heart towards sinners and sufferers is maybe something different than what we thought? Do you remember when that crystallized for you and you kind of had that realization? Yes, I do. It was reading Thomas Goodwin's The The Heart of Christ Who Is in Heaven for Sinners Who Are on Earth <laughs> for Dane Ortland. And um, actually, the real title is about four times longer than that. But it was uh, uh, several pages in, Goodwin starts talking about the heart of Christ in a way I thought we were not allowed to talk about. What do you mean by that? In effusively blushing terms, in ways that, you know, you may take your hands and you may lay them on the breast of Christ, and you may feel the way his heart yearns and beats for you even now as he is in heaven. Yea, more now that he is in heaven as his very own spirit abides within you. This kind of thing. Hmm. I didn't know you could talk about him that way. I thought only the liberals could talk about him that way. And actually, um, they can't. But this is how the Puritans... So it was reading that little Puritan paperback the Banner of Truth published that um, it's like suddenly it all started to explode in my heart and they showed it to me in the scripture and I began to find it in some of the other dead authors, but Goodwin most of all. Hmm. Hmm. Why do you think it is that this way of viewing Jesus, why did we lose it? Why is it so foreign to so many of us? I don't know the full answer to that. One or two thoughts are um, we don't um, – it feels mushy to us. That's, that could be one answer. Another is we, we grow – we have done a wonderful job recovering the centrality of the gospel in an objective way in our generation. Atonement, justification, redemption, adoption. Those are glorious realities. We dare not ever stop talking about and celebrating and singing about and praying our way through. But those are essentially objective realities. It is what is, in a black and white way, true of me as someone who is in Christ. 
But as someone who is in Christ, there is also this subjective reality of how he, especially as the God-man, feels about his little pinky toe Dane Ortland on earth, mm. of which he is the head, his own body, how he feels. And the scripture will not let us wiggle out from under the conclusion that he is drawn, <laughs> he is drawn most strongly to us when we are at our worst, mm. if we are his body. And uh, that's just a wondrous truth yeah. that we have not been talking about much. Yeah, right. So then do you remember the moment that you decided uh, not just that you were amazed by this discovery and uh, convicted by this discovery and how you thought about Jesus, but actually thought, you know, I think I could write a book about this. I feel like I need to write a book about this. Hmm. Uh, do you remember that moment? Yes, it was slowly building over time, Matt. And I had some discussions with... Um, my former colleague and your current colleague, Justin Taylor, and uh, told him what was beginning to marinate in my own heart as I was reading the Puritans. I said, I, I would love to write a book on this grand theme. And I said to Justin, I'd like to do it in my 60s. And, um, and he said, okay. And in his gracious, godly, humble way, he um, <laughs> kind of gently rebuked me for that mm. and said, you know, it's a little presumptuous of you, Dane, to think, number one, you'll still be alive then. Number two, that you will still have this um, fresh in your own heart. That's a realistic comment. And so he said, why don't you just think about giving it time now? So I said, okay, very well. I was thinking, give it decades to percolate. Yeah. But I think actually there's a lot of wisdom in what he said. And so I did it about um, 22 years sooner than I was planning <laughs> and uh, began conversations with Crossway. And it has been so much fun working with my favorite publisher on the planet about this glorious theme. Mm, yeah, it's been a delight for us too. Uh, another question here from a listener in Burnaby, British Columbia. Uh, As you say in your book, Matthew eleven twenty nine is the only place where Jesus specifically talks about his heart. And the Greek word there is cardia, I believe. Hmm. In your opinion, what are the other two or three most important places in the scriptures where we get a picture of the heart of Jesus, even though the word heart is not actually used? Wow, what a great question. Well, there are there are many places. Um, a couple that come to mind, Matt, are, of course, Hebrews, which I just pick up a couple of brief verses in the book. But Hebrews is littered. It is strewn with reflection on the the best word here is the solidarity of Christ with his people. Mm. It's such a focus on the the humanness of Christ and on his solidarity with us on the way in which he moves through life and knows exactly what we are going through. So in Paul you get a strong sense of Christ vicariously in a substitutionary way um, taking our place. That's glorious. In Hebrews, you get the complementary truth of Christ not bumping us out of the judgment seat and bearing our punishment. Actually, you do get a little bit of that in Hebrews, but you also get this way in which Christ with us experienced what we do, mm. especially the end of chapter two, the end of chapter four, in every way minus sin, bracketing out sin, 
In every way, he knew what we walk through. So Hebrews would be one. Uh, John 14 to 16. I don't spend much time there in the book, but John 14 to 16 is a place where, as Christ is in the upper room, where his heart is on full display. He might not say, this is my heart, but that is what is pouring out of him as he talks to his disciples. One other passage that comes to mind. Man, this is such glory. Ephesians 3, end of Ephesians 3. This is so, so completely unpreachable. You cannot ever touch the ceiling on this. Mm. Ephesians 3, where Paul prays. Who would ever have expected him to pray like this? He is praying that um, the Ephesians would have power. Now, hang on. Power for what? To walk on water? To raise the dead, heal people? No. Power, supernatural power to know how much Jesus loves them. Mm to know the love of Christ, the height and breadth and length and width of it, that, that passage. Um, and the, the, the meaning of the text as you expound it and look at it very closely is that you actually can't know and experience and feel Christ's loving heart for you without heaven giving it to you, without the Holy Spirit uh, supercharging that experience, letting you letting your heart crack open to that more deeply than we ever could in our own natural resources. So that's that's Christ's heart, too, in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And kind of going back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation, it does seem like we can be so often focused on the objective elements of the gospel and of salvation that we miss that, you know, Paul is praying essentially for uh, an experiential knowing of salvation that we've been given, not merely the objective reality behind that. Yeah, exactly right. And it's a both and. And wouldn't you say, Matt, some of us are are more comfortable with one <laughs> mm. than the other? Yeah, some of right. us are, you know, uh, let's just go to school. I want to write my papers, take my test, do a multiple choice exam. <laughs> and um, I am really comfortable in Galatians 3 and Romans yeah. 4. We're not putting our hands up in worship as much. Right. Yeah. Others of us, we are just wired the other direction and um, and so on. But it's a both and to know. Of course, the biblical language of knowing, Old Testament and new, is not one or the other, objective or subjective. It is the whole human experience. Mm. Um, and, um, and that really reflects what we're talking about anyway when we talk about the heart of Christ. The heart is a total human experience category. It's not just the emotional side. Yeah. It's the thinking, judging, rationalizing, feeling, yes, experiencing. And um, so as we talk about Christ's heart, that lands on us in a total experience, total knowing, our own total heart receiving that. Mm. Another question here that actually relates to the book of Hebrews and these other passages that that speak to this issue uh, from a listener in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Hebrews 4.15 says that Christ sympathizes with us in our weaknesses uh, because he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Uh, Yet human temptations are so strong because of indwelling sin, which Jesus never had. So how are Christians consoled with the knowledge of Jesus's temptations uh, with that big difference. Hmm. Well, human sin certainly does make us more prone to cave into temptations, for sure. For sure. I I accept that premise. I'm not sure, Matt, I would agree with the premise that indwelling sin itself strengthens the temptations, mm. the temptations themselves, actually. Maybe, 
maybe that's true. But even if I were to concede that, I would want to put back to the questioner the notion that Christ had temptations we don't. Okay, sure, maybe we have indwelling sin, so we cave in a way he never did. But Christ, as the God-man, as the, the last Adam, succeeding in every way we don't, had temptations we don't fully experience or uh, certainly experience certain temptations more fiercely than we do. In other words, uh, his difference from us, I think, yes, perhaps at one level made things easier for him. He didn't have indwelling sin. I, I don't know exactly how to think about that, but also harder. Mm. And here's a great way to, th- to think about what I'm trying to say right now. C.S. Lewis talks about temptation in terms of a man walking against a strong wind. And he says, if a man finally yields to that wind and lies down, he doesn't know how strong the wind would have been 10 minutes later when he's that much more tired. Right. And that's what Jesus did. He never lay down. So actually, the logic of that is that Christ knew more intensely what all of our human temptations are than we ever do, because we do give in from time to time. Uh, or often. And so I, I would just say, let's let Hebrews say what Hebrews says, that he experienced all that we experience um, minus sin. Hmm. Do you think there's a limit to our, our ability to understand some of these kinds of issues hmm. when we get to Jesus's person and and the two natures that were I'm in play sure there? I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. I mean, when we read Luke 4 and Matthew 4, the two accounts of the temptation of Christ being tempted by Satan— it's a little mystifying. What exactly mentally and psychologically was our Lord enduring? Mm. We can understand to a degree, truly. I don't believe, as you rightly are saying, Matt, that we can understand exhaustively, experientially, what Christ was walking through, given his unique role as the coming Christ, the Messiah, David's son, and what he was fulfilling on behalf of all of his people for all of human history. Uh, no wonder he was sweating blood when he was on the eve of the cross. Yeah, yeah. Another question from a listener in Chicago, Illinois, right down the road from us. I long for the gentleness of Jesus, but when I realize that my repentance is not as deep as it should be and my ongoing sin is still great, I am terrified of Jesus' wrath mm. and violence so often depicted against those who fail in faith. Mm-hmm. How can I make sense of this? and reconcile Jesus' gentleness, but also his wrath against sin when I'm not as faithful as I should be. Uh, another listener in Amman, Jordan, had a similar question. How do, I, how do you understand the emphasis in the Old Testament in particular of God being judging and wrathful mm. compared to Jesus? Mm. Wow. Those are big questions. Those are urgent questions, Matt. And um, that, that actually... I'm touched by that that first questioner, the way he, he or she puts it. Um, you can hear where they are at, can't you? Mm, the posture. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, actually, the very posture of that questioner reflects um, the, the, the answer to the question, actually. Uh, it's the person who doesn't ask that question in that kind of way who uh, it may be in peril of experiencing the wrath of Christ eventually. We can't see, of course, who this person asking the question, where they're exactly at spiritually and so on. But I think I heard the questioner speak of longing for the gentleness of Jesus and to 
to realize that uh, my experience of repentance is not as deep as it should be. That's honest. Mm, yeah. That reflects spiritual, that, that, that reflects a certain freshness of heart before the Lord. Um, the heart of Christ exists to calm and assuage that kind of concern and fear. Uh, that's the whole point. If you're asking, you know, I, I don't know if I'm doing things right to get Christ's heart, you probably are because uh, you want it. If you're assuming you don't need to ask that question and that you have everything pretty well put together inside of you, then you may be in a spiritually perilous position. So I love hearing that question. It almost answers itself. Mm. Now, having said that, the, the question does remain and need to be wrestled with and answered. How does Christ's gentle heart fit with his wrath? That's, that's an urgent, immediate, obvious thing that we need to keep wrestling with. One way to tackle that, I think, Matt, is actually there would be no gentleness of heart if there were no wrath. What I, no, no taking sin with utmost moral seriousness. I mean, if Jesus were a big softy with no wrath, no judgment towards hardness of heart, towards impenitent sin, actually, I believe, then his gentle and lowly heart dissolves too. It's both or neither. Um, because otherwise, if he's not a wrathful judging Christ to the impenitent, then he's not really gentle and lowly in heart. He's just smilier than us. Hmm. He's just nicer. It's froth. Uh but, you know, people tend to think of wrath and gentleness from Christ like two ends of a seesaw. One goes up, the other goes down. It's right. much more like two rising elevators together and falling together. And if one goes up, like they're tied together, the other has to go up. Yeah. It's both or neither. So um, even if that's true from yeah. Scripture and you would want to make that case from Scripture, do you ever struggle to... Accept that reality, though, that they, are, they aren't they are a seesaw, that they actually are two elevators going up and down together? No, I don't. Um, maybe I should more. I'm actually really relieved that he is a Christ of wrath and judgment. Um, what, if not, what can we say to the victim who has been deeply, deeply mistreated? Actually, whose life has been ruined through the sin and mistreatment or abuse or whatever of others. If there's not a Christ who is going to right all wrongs and who is... Jonathan Edwards preached this and took great comfort in it as he was getting unjustly fired. Um, if there's not a Christ who will right all wrongs, I don't think that's a Christ to whom I can open my heart for his heart, his lowly heart, to come in. Um, because it's a partial Savior. It's a partial Christ. And it's it's not one I can put the full weight of all of my commitment uh, onto. Hmm. Yeah. Another question from Dallas, Texas. Hi, Dane. Can you help me better understand your view of divine impassibility? Hmm. Do you believe that God experiences emotional change via his covenantal relationship with us? I wonder if you could start mm -hmm. answering that question by helping to define that word divine impassibility hmm. first. Wow. We are getting into deeper and deeper waters here, brother. Uh, divine impassibility is the notion that, that God is not at the, uh, his, his own internal um, affections, his own what is happening within the Godhead are not at the mercy of 
circumstance. They're not at, he, he is not reactionary. He's not reacting to us and at the behest of what is going on in the world. Um, and so, uh, so we don't want to speak of God as emotional um, in the same way that we are. Here's what I would want to say. Does God have emotions? Yes, we emotion-laden creatures are created in his image. Surely, among other things, one thing that must mean is the level of emotion. The difference is we are fallen creatures, so our emotions go haywire. Um, Our emotions are at the mercy of our circumstances. God has emotions, yes, but he is also impassable. He is not at the mercy of circumstances. No, he is not. And I think people can get worried about divine impassibility because they assume that the answer to both questions are yes. That he ha- Does he have emotions? Is he at the mercy of circumstances? But it's a yes-no. Uh, the Puritans were very, very careful to navigate this uh, with theological care because there are traps laden everywhere. So we want to speak the way the Scripture does about God. God is impassable. Uh, but he is also, the Scripture says, a passionate God. Yeah. Uh, He would not be God if he were not. Uh, He is an overflowing fountain of love. That's who he is. We are, as Christians, Matt, as Bible Christians, we are not Neoplatonists. We don't believe that there's a deity up there who is cold, aloof, and distant. Mm. Um, Actually, perhaps many of us in our Christian evangelical churches actually functionally do believe that. But that's not what the scripture gives us. Uh, Ultimate reality is not cold, dark, empty space, but an unceasing explosion of of intra-Trinitarian love spilling out to engulf his Mm. people. That's actually what ultimate reality is. So let's affirm divine impassibility. But also say that. Yeah. So you said that God is not reactionary in his emotions to the, the changing circumstances around us. How would you distinguish between God being reactionary on the one hand and being responsive to his people, oh. responsive to our our needs, and even having emotions in response to yeah. us? What, where's the line there? Excellent question. Um, he reacts. He is not reactionary. He um, He responds. He is not at the whim, mercy, and behest of uh, what he is responding to. Mm. And I think maybe one way into that, Matt, is to understand the the nature of the covenant relationship with which uh, he um, engages his people. He comes to us, Calvin is very strong on this in the Institutes, he comes to us in such a way that is sort of uh, getting down on our level and looking us in the eyes, kind of like uh, if you or I, each of us stands about six feet tall, get down with a little two-year-old. We get down and sort of speak to them on their level. We might get on our hands and knees. It's (laughs) out of our love for them uh, and so on. That's a very imperfect analogy. But God by covenant has, in a sense, bound himself to us in relationship, and he is um, he has chosen not because he has to, he is God, but he has chosen in his condescension to interact with us in, in a meaningful, relational, personal way. Uh, the doctrine of the covenant is, I think, one way to, to understand that mm-hmm. in Scripture. So, yes, he does respond to us. You cannot read the Bible for long without concluding God interacts meaningfully with us. 
but he is also God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need to hold both of these things together. He he responds. He is personal. He, um, he meaningfully engages us on the one hand, and he is transcendent, glorious, utterly beyond both in space and time, uh, anything, uh, anything within our, within us. Mm, yeah. Maybe another theological question from Hutchinson, Kansas. Union with Christ is the central mm. core of the gospel. It's the thread that stitches together the whole Bible. How do you see the relationship between the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus with his indescribable, indescribable gift of eternal union with him? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I I don't know exactly how to connect the dots here. I do know um, we all love union with Christ. Wow. That is the macro doctrine in terms of salvation in the New Testament. Um, It is, uh, as this questioner rightly said, uh, the core of the gospel. So maybe we could say something like this. Christ's heart embraces those in union with him. Hmm. I mean, remember, uh, we are his own body. Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting all those Christians way down there who are dissociated from me? (laughs) (laughs) My followers. My followers, right. Why are you persecuting me, my own body parts, my members? Uh, The New Testament speaks of union with Christ in two ways sort of a macro way and a micro way. In a macro way, we are, uh, he's our federal head. We are in Christ in the sense that we were, uh, in the sense that unbelievers are in Adam. As his fate goes, so goes ours. It's And so in that way, Christ's heart comes out to us sort of like a father's for his children. He is our federal head um, uh, like that. But also in a micro way, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, second half of 1 Corinthians 6 makes this very clear. In a micro way, there's an intimacy to being in Christ, one with him, where it's more like marriage, like a husband's wife for his bride. So as a father's um, heart for his kids— as a husband's, a, a, a loving, healthy husband's love heart for his wife. In both ways, I think we could say the New Testament speaks of our union with Christ and how we experience uh, his heart. Mm, yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, all right, a question from Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas. You mentioned in the book a common practice for the Puritans was to take a single verse and just squeeze every last drop right. from it. Uh, kind of, usually they would, they would even write a whole book out of it. And yeah. this person writes, These days, a quick browse of the average Christian's bookshelf reveals that we don't do that as often anymore. No. Uh, is that something that you were trying to do with your book? No. I did want to treat the scripture like that, but I, I was looking at 20 or 25 passages, not just one. Well, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I guess sort of was that, mm. but I was also yeah. kind of going all over the place. So right. I, I was not trying to do what the Puritans did. But maybe even to broaden the concept, mm. you were taking a, a pretty focused concept, a yes. pretty focused theme, and really trying to unpack it from scripture, and, and then even... Uh, not just summarize like a biblical theology say, That's but true. actually apply it to the listener in a really uh, focused sort of way. That's true. Yeah, you're right, brother. I remember talking with the Crossway publishing team and saying, I, what I want to do is take the heart of Christ and look at it like a diamond, hmm. many faceted diamond. And one chapter is this facet, another chapter is this facet. So just in the same way, you might go downtown Chicago, look at the Sears Tower, and you have 20 people looking at it from 20 different angles, and they're describing what they see. They're all looking at one thing. But they're describing it differently. Mm, yeah. uh, that's what I wanted to do with the heart of Christ because it demands it, mm. and we haven't been talking about it. Yeah. Is there any other 
uh, doctrine or uh, point of uh, our salvation that you feel like would also deserve a similar kind of exploration? Wow. Actually, I think there are several that we have not been talking about enough. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) One is um, intercession, the intercession of Christ. Another is hell. Uh, The old timers talked about hell much more freely and um, it, it, there's a lot, lots of healthy things happen when we reflect on hell hmm. in, in the right way. And another is heaven. Uh, we we are we don't talk and think and sing enough about heaven. So there yeah. are other things. But Matt, I would say those are all. Is this right to say those are all offshoots of the heart of Christ? That's not quite the right way to put it. But the heart of Christ is so central. It is so you can stake a whole life on what Christ's heart is. And there's a sense in which everything is footnotes mm. to that. Mm. So um, I'm glad we've been thinking about that more. Yeah, right. Maybe as a last question then, uh, this is from a listener in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm. I'm a young church leader who has recently started delving into the Puritans. Do you have any top recommendations for good books to start with? I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> you like this question. <laughs> there are so many. Oh, there are so many. A couple that come to mind. One, uh, of course, is Richard Sibbs' The The Bruised Reed, where he does what you just said the Puritans did. They took a single verse and wrung it dry, and whatever came out 300 pages later, send it off to the publisher. And and what verse did he was he looking at? He was taking Matthew 12, where Jesus says, A bruised reed I will not break, Um, a smoking wick I will not snuff out, Mm. which is a quote from Isaiah where it's talking about the servant to come. And Jesus is uh, is applying that to himself. What a beautiful picture. So Jesus is the kind of savior, just one sentence about that book. Jesus is the kind of savior, apparently, who if you are like a tall green frond by a river and you've been trampled by animals and in a sense your back is broken, you are crippled, you have endured the fallenness of this world, And the slightest little breeze will knock you over to your destruction. He's the kind of Savior, apparently, who comes by and doesn't knock you over. He comes by and bandages you, heals you, props you up, and gives you fresh strength. He's not the kind of Savior who comes by and licks his his finger and thumb and snuffs you out when you're almost going out. The flame is almost out. This is the biblical image there in Matthew 12. He's the kind of Savior who fosters fresh blaze. Mm. That's the kind of Savior mm. he is. So Richard Sibbs, uh, John Bunyan, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard a better title to a book than mm, that? Wow. Come and welcome <laughs> to Jesus Christ on John 6, where Jesus uh, says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It was Bunyan's favorite verse. Uh, I He never said that, but I deduce that because it's the verse he quotes more than any other, huh. even when he's talked in other books, not expounding that particular verse. But come and welcome to Jesus Christ in volume one of his collected works that Banner of Truth publishes is his extended reflection on that verse. And it's not just evangelism. It's not all you unbelievers right, come. It's, right. us, um, it's us believers who keep screwing. Growing up, you come and welcome come again. Yeah. to Jesus Christ. That's mm. a couple. That's so great. Well, Dane, thank you so much for taking the time today to uh, answer some of these questions that were sent in from, from listeners and readers of your book from around the world. Mm. We appreciate you taking the time. 
What a joy to talk with you, Matt. You do such great work, as does everyone at Crossway. So thanks for the privilege of doing this. That was Dane Ortland answering your questions related to his best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly. Pick up a copy of Gentle and Lowly for 30% off with a free Crossway Plus account. For more information, visit crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.